Well, good evening. Good to be back with you, back in God's Word. Picking up in Genesis chapter 2, if you want to open your Bibles. And in Genesis chapter 2, we are going to really finish setting the stage. The title of this evening's message is Setting the Stage, because really that's what's happening here is as we go through this account of creation uh, in chapter 1, we see the detailed chronological order of creation, and then transitioning in chapter 2, beginning of chapter 2, as we've already gone through, finishes that chronological uh, capstone of creation, and then we, tran- then we transition into more of a detailed narrative, giving us some final details and setting the stage. And so we're going to talk about that more. But from a bird's eye view, uh, chapter 2 is essentially the conclusion of that creation narrative. And the first 11 chapters in Genesis are really sort of this prehistory section. And history really begins with the calling of Abram or Abraham in chapter 12. So we've learned thus far how important the creation narrative is. We've talked about how the concept of creation is, is far more important than we may have initially realized. Yes, certainly, understanding creation, what we believe about how we got here, whether it's by chance and chaos or whether it's by design, it affects our worldview, doesn't it? It changes how we think, it changes how we live. But beyond that, we also see in Scripture that understanding creation and believing God's Word, taking it for face value, also has a, a deeper and more impactful meaning to us because throughout Scripture we're told that all peoples, all cultures, all peoples, all of us, no exceptions, will be held accountable to God for what knowledge we have of our Creator through creation. It doesn't matter what culture we were raised in, what era we were raised in, what country we were in, uh, what we were told or not told, everyone's whole held accountable for one thing the same, and that's what we did with the knowledge of God by his creation. And so the importance of creation and believing in this passage and understanding its implications is critical. It's foundational. And so we've, we've talked about that. Now in Scripture, one of the ways we measure the importance of the topics discussed in Scripture is uh, how much time is allotted to it. And now we see in uh, this first part, one of the reasons I've titled it Setting the Stage is we see really if we talk about creation in general and look at the whole of Scripture, how much time is devoted to telling us about the creation process and the fact that God created. Not a lot really in the volume of things. We have the first couple chapters, right? And then scattered Scriptures throughout uh, the whole Bible. All in all adding up to maybe half a dozen chapters. It's certainly important and critical, no doubt, as we've already found out. But the second chapter of, or the second portion of God's creative process, which we're going to talk about, the reason the whole stage is set is what the rest of the Bible is devoted to. And that's God's design and creation, his plan of redemption, his plan for his people, that we would know him. And we look at another way of measuring importance. We look at cost. I heard it um, mentioned by a commentator in comparing God's work in creation and finishing that with God's work in redemption and finishing that on the cross and with Jesus rising again. What did it cost God? Well, creation, uh, relatively speaking, not to minimize, it didn't cost him much. But what did redeeming us cost God? His own son. And so, relatively speaking, God's next work of creation in working in us um, is of incredible importance. You know, it's kind of like setting a stage. Uh, How many have been to Lifehouse Theater? I've been down there quite a few times. Really cool place. And they do a really good job. They put on a great little production. I love going there. And it's always very God-centered and biblically themed. So it's really uplifting. Um, and they put a lot of work into each production. Before anything is, is set up or put together, obviously, first it starts in the mind of the author, right? The person who wrote that play develops the story and the script and what does it look like and all the aspects of it. And then they, and then they do what? They build the stage. And they, they create all the pieces of the picture and the backdrop and all of the different sets that will go with the different um, stages throughout that process. And 
if they were to get all to that place where they built the stage, put all the decorations out and painted everything, got it all set up, and stopped there and just admired that, that'd be kind of silly, wouldn't it? That's, that's, that completely defeats the purpose. The whole point of the stage is what? For the show, the production, the main event, just like a concert. A lot goes into setting up the stage and everything, but you don't go to see the stage, you go to see the person on the stage, go to see the concert. And in the same way, here we've looked at something amazing in creation. It's incredible. It's a pretty incredible stage God has set. But understand, this is just the stage. This is just the platform. This is just the lights and the cameras and the setup for the most important thing. And that's what God intends to do with us. That's the redemptive process that he then begins. And so this chapter concludes this, and we see God's amazing design in setting this stage. And if God is, is such a skillful and incredible designer in setting the stage, how much more skillful and incredible of a designer is he in planning our redemption, in planning out the plan of salvation for you and I? How incredible that is must be, and especially when we consider the comparative importance. And I think it's, I think of the intricate detail and the mystery of it, as Paul calls it, the mystery of the gospel. It's going to probably take a good portion of eternity for us to really understand all that God has planned for us, why he did it the way he did it. There's so much about it we, we do not know and understand. And as we step into eternity, I think we'll have lots of time just under wrapping our minds around how incredible this creation of his is in our salvation. So setting the stage, that's what this is about. We're going to look at how chapter two wraps up the creation, gives us some details, and it takes it from a different angle. We're going to talk about that because there's a major controversy um, between chapter one and chapter two. Well, this is one of the big issues that uh, those who would doubt the scriptures uh, would point out and say there's, a, there's basically a major contradiction between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1 lays out creation in a certain order and certain details. Chapter 2 completely contradicts it, or so it appears. And we're going to look at that. We're going to examine that. So before we get into chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 4. Uh, why don't we go ahead and pray, ask God's blessing on his word before we read if you'll join me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this account, Lord, that gives us a glimpse into your creative power, your just incredible intelligence and design, your love and compassion, that you would go to all this work to set all this up just to carry out your plan of salvation and redemption, your plan of having an intimate relationship with your creation. And Lord, we don't understand it, there's much about it that to us doesn't make sense or that is beyond our comprehension, but Lord, we're thankful. And Lord, I pray that we would come to your word with, with grateful hearts and with open hearts to receive from your spirit tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So picking up in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and heaven. Verse 5, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, for there was no man to cultivate the ground. So first of all, we're given a clue right here right off the bat on how to interpret this following portion of chapter 2. You notice it says in verse 4, it says, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Do you remember that study we did on the word day, yom? In the Hebrew, what does that mean? And how it has been interpreted in different ways right throughout the scriptures. It can mean uh, specifically a 24-hour day. It can mean the daylight period of time, the time when the sun is shining. It can mean an era or a, a, a vast length of time or an indeterminate amount of time. And it can also mean a specific point in history. So there's a lot of ways that this word day can be used. But how do we determine what it means in, in a point of usage? Remember that? Context, hermeneutics, studying language, certain qualifiers that surround it. What do we see in chapter one? What do we see that helped us know how to interpret the word day? Anybody? What did it say about that day? The first day, second day, right? 
and it was evening and morning, or this day, that day. We see these qualifiers that clearly spell out how we're meant to take the usage. Well, we see right here in chapter 2, verse 4, he switches gears and how he uses the word day. We don't see first, second, third, right? When we see this here, we don't see evening and morning, do we? And so we know that he's not being specific right now. He's not talking about chronological order. And this is important because, <clears throat> excuse me, this is one of those things that will help us properly understand the contrast and comparison between chapter 1 and 2. Because as we just read, it talks about how no shrub in the field had sprouted, nothing had grown, God had not sent rain, man hadn't cultivated the ground, and then it goes right on in the, ne <clears throat> excuse me, in the next verse to talk about how God created man. <clears throat> excuse me, get some water here. <clears throat> Apologize. So it appears that if we follow chapter 2 chronologically, that there's a real problem here. It appears that basically it's saying there's no plants created yet, and then God created man, and then the plants came after. Well, if we look at chapter 1, that's not how it went. How can that be? There, there seems to be a real problem here. Well, we're going to talk about that. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about some of the other words in these first couple verses. It says, one of the other things I want you to notice here in verse 4 it says, for the first time in that day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. Do you notice that it doesn't just say God? All up to this point, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God did this. God did that. And it simply uses the word Elohim, a pretty generic term for God, a pretty impersonal word for God in the Hebrew. Here, for the first time, he says, Lord God in this verse. And so not only do we see the, the different in usage of the word day, we also see a different title for God, a different name used for God, a more personal, a more specific name for God. This word Lord God, the word Lord, meaning self-existent or eternal one. It's actually uh, Yahweh or Jehovah, as is modernly interpreted. Um, this is the specific Hebrew or Jewish name of God, coupled with God Elohim. And this is the covenant name of God used here. Very interesting how right here, still in the creation narrative, we see a very specific, very personal name applied to this God that created all things. So we see a switch in narrative. It gets more personal. It gets more detailed. And we see that based on how the word day is used, he's talking not about specific chronological things now. He's, he's transitioned from that. He's now going, Let's, let me give you some detail. Let me give you more background as we set this stage as we paint this picture for what God's about to do for his plan for mankind, I'm going to give you some more details. And it's not really about laying out the order anymore and the time frames. It's about helping us understand relevant details. That's important when we look at this apparent contradiction. So it says, No shrub of the field was yet in the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate it. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. So the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So, according, again, according to chapter 1, verse 11 through 14, plants were created on the third day. And yet here it seems to indicate man's presence was after. Well, there's two things I want to give you real quick. First of all, we just talked about it. Obviously, the narrative has changed. He's not talking about chronological order now. He's talking about details. He's given us some different aspects and details about the creation account that he wants us to know. Secondarily, you know, it's kind of like, well, first of all, let me compare it to this. Um, in trying to wrap my mind around it, because at first I wrestled with it as well. It's kind of like if I were to tell you about a, a family vacation that we went up to Yosemite. You know, we've done those family campouts here with the church, went up to Yosemite. Quite a few of us went, that was a fun trip. We've got to do that again, by the way. But if I were to come back and tell you about my trip to Yosemite, I could do it in two different ways. I could spell it out for you chronologically. I could go, well, you know, on the first day we went to this lake and we fished and then we biked down to the town and we did this. And then on the second day we did this. And I just give you a quick snapshot in order like that. Or I could just list all these different things we did. We went and saw Rainbow Falls and we went over here and then oh, we saw Onyx uh, summit. We saw all these different things. And I could describe all these things to you. And it really wouldn't matter about when they happened. It just all happened on the trip. You see what I'm saying? 
this part of chapter two is like that second part, based on based on how it is laid out, how the language is used. Secondarily, it seems to indicate that a man's tilling is necessary for plants to grow. So there seems to be a, spe- a specific distinction made here between the wording I want to point out to you. So not only does there seem to be the problem of the order of creation, but it also says that things weren't growing because essentially man hadn't cultivated the ground and it hadn't rained yet. Well, wait a second, that doesn't seem to be consistent with the ch- first chapter. Again, one of the things that we have to pay attention to words and how it's and how it's how it's laid out. One of the details we're being given here is not it's not about the order of creation, it's about the condition of the earth prior to man's creation. And again, setting that stage, you'll notice he uses some specific words when he's describing this here that are different than in chapter one. And I'll read that to you. It says in chapter one, it says, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and reading from the New American Standard. Uh, fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind. Trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. Now chapter 2, it says, No shrub of the field was yet in the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprouted. Those words of the field actually weren't present in chapter 1. We're given a little bit more detail there. What's he talking about? He's basically talking about man's interaction Man's stewardship over creation hadn't begun yet. That's the point he's making here. He says, listen, before man actually had been put in place to take care of the earth, to till it, to tend it, because that was part of God's plan. That wasn't just part of the curse. Right from the beginning, it was God's intention and design to give us something to do, uh, to have us tend to creation, to have dominion over it. He spells it out in chapter 1, right? Remember that very at the very end. And so this is what he's illustrating here, is that man hadn't taken dominion over the earth yet. He's saying there's no, there's no plants in a field. There's no, there is no crops being grown or tilled yet, is what he's talking about. Not that no plant has ever grown prior to man uh, being created. That makes sense. Are you following me on that, that distinction there? It's very important. This is one of the critical things that are brought up, and it can really, you can really get hung up on it. So he's illustrating, first of all, details and without a specific order, clearly, by the language being used. And also, he's illustrating that man's stewardship had not yet begun over creation. That's what he's talking about in this, in this section. Also, he talks about rain. He says, no rain yet, but a mist is what watered the whole earth. It's interesting to note, and we'll read about Noah later, but you think about the flood and you think about the rain during Noah's time, it wasn't just that rain was uncommon. Rain had never happened before. Rain was a new thing for them. Can you imagine how scary and how crazy that would seem to have something that catastrophic happen? Suddenly water and these massive drops was falling from the sky, and you'd never seen that. Before, it was just this mist, this gentle mist that would water everything. Everything was this like giant greenhouse. And now rain suddenly happens at Noah's flood. So we've got to understand how what a dramatic thing that was. So we're, te- we're getting, again, a little snippet of detail here as to the climate and how God set up the ecosystem of earth, that his method for watering wasn't like we see it today. It wasn't these clouds that would rain in specific locations. It wasn't this uh, pathetic excuse of an El Nino that we were having. It, is, it was everywhere, this consistent method of watering via this mist, via this greenhouse effect, because of that water canopy that he created. So then reading on, says the Lord God, again using the same specific title, for man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So told a little bit more about the creation of humans, creation of mankind here. He was formed specifically out of the dust of the ground, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Throughout Scripture, we see this truth referred to. A couple of, of Scriptures for you. Isaiah 45, 9 talks about comparing us to clay. It says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among vessels of the earth. Will clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or will the thing made say to the thing making it, You have no hands? Or in Romans, in the New Testament, Romans 9, 20, it says, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make it out of the same lump, one vessel for honor and another for common use? But you know what? I, I see this, and it's illustrating a point in many places where it's brought up in Scripture, that we have to remember our place 
in the universe. So we're the created ones, and God is the creator. And that should give us a certain amount of humility to realize we were made from dirt, guys. <laughs> dirt. Not gold, dirt. You know, uh, it, w- it wasn't some special substance. God scraped his mud together and formed us. And obviously, we're a very special, incredible, unique creation. Um, but we should have a certain amount of humility that should be illustrated here. And one of the things I love in Scripture is we're taught not only about the humility we should have as clay to a potter, but also that our Father understands us, that He knows what we're made of. And in Psalms 103, verse 13, it says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. So that helps me. You know, I, we can be hard on ourselves sometimes, can't we? But we can also be pretty hard on each other, pretty judgmental, pretty harsh. And you know what? God is a gracious God. He's a gracious Father. He knows our weakness. He knows uh, the struggle we have in this mortal frame, this dust, this earthen vessel that we live in right now. It comes with certain temptations and frailties and weaknesses that we struggle with, it, that's at war with our spirit. And God knows that. He's not surprised by that. So when we struggle, when we strive, when we fall, when we're weak because we're just plain sick and tired, God understands. He's there to wrap his arms around us, not whack us with a bat and say, get up, you wimp. He's not like that. He knows we're but dust. And I love that he understands our frailty. Something we need to remember, not only for ourselves, but for one another. So reading on, it says in 2, verse 8, God had planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So he not only made this whole huge special creation, this earth and its environment, but he made this special spot on earth for man, the special garden, the special place to get him started in taking dominion and stewardship over the earth. He created Eden. In verse 9, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God caused every tree that is pleasing in the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we're going to talk quite a bit more about these trees in the next chapter, so I'm going to save that for later because there's plenty to be said in the next chapter when we get to the issue of the fall and Adam's choice, his very poor choice in, in fruit choosing. He had some good options. He did not choose wisely, as they say. So we're going to get into the, these trees a little bit more in chapter 3. I'm going to save that and read on. And it says, Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, and Delium and Onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon, and it flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is Tigris, and it flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, it's speculated that Eden was actually in the area known as the Fertile Crescent. How many have heard of the Fertile Crescent over in that area? Fertile Crescent is, it makes kind of this crescent shape right around the Middle East over there. And if you look at that area, it talks about the Garden of Eden being uh, this, this area being east, um, eastward of this area. So it would put that area really literally smack dab where Israel is today. And so there's some that speculate that the Garden of Eden was really, literally where, where uh, Israel or thereabouts is today. Now I could show you a map and you'll see modern day rivers on there. You'll see the Euphrates. You'll see these, the Tigris and these rivers marked out and you'll see this area. But one of the things we need to remember, I mean we looked at this where it talks about the gold in the land of Havilah, um, I encourage you, don't go looking for it. Because, first of all, one of the things we have to remember in all of this is that Second Peter 3 tells us about the condition of the, today's modern earth compared to the one then. And it says that the world that was then perished. So one of the things we know is it's pretty much a vain pursuit to try and nail down where was the Garden of Eden or where were these things exactly. Things have changed pretty dramatically since then. And we're going to find more out about that later on in Genesis when we read about the flood and about the great separation that happened during Peleg and some of these different things, these indications of some massive geological shifts that happened. So ultimately it's pretty tough to tell or have any idea where exactly Eden was historically because the earth is drastically different than it was 
during that time. But God created this special place, and that's where he chose to initiate mankind and to initiate his plan of redemption, his plan for society, all of these things. You see the beginning of marriage we're going to talk about, the beginning of the building block of society and all of this. He chose to start it right in this special garden he created called Eden. And he put him there to cultivate it, it says. So again, I want to bring this up that prior to the fall, we tend to associate work with the fall, don't we? We look at, oh man, we have to work. It's all a curse and it's terrible and frustrating. And yes, it is sometimes, many times. And the toil in, in part, in some ways, is part of the curse. But we see here that clearly God intended for us to work and to take satisfaction and joy in that. That he intended for us, to, as it says in chapter 1, to have dominion over the earth. Well, that involves work. That involves going out and being fruitful and multiplying, as he says, and developing areas and mapping things out and discovering. And we're told here a little bit about the inherent nature that God gave us. You see, I believe that Scripture clearly teaches God created us to create. God gave, that's part of the nature he gave us in being like him and being built in his image. He created us to create. He created us to discover. He created us to take dominion, which means to work and to build and to plant and to cultivate. And we have that inherent desire. We have a desire to be productive, don't we? We have a desire to do things. You know, and it's interesting to see today's society where, you know, you see a lot of lazy people in our culture, don't you? You see people who sort of expect to get something for nothing. And it's really completely counter to how God designed us. And there's a lot, we could talk about a lot of the contributing factors to that. Of course, we could debate all day long. That'd be a pretty long conversation. So I don't want to necessarily go down that road. But one of the things I will mention that I've noticed, and I read an interesting article about it, um, just a few months ago, I was talking about the issue of video games. And I don't want to get up on a soapbox about video games right now, necessarily. Maybe a little one. But the interesting thing they found out about video games is that they're very addictive. Have you noticed that, anybody? Angry Birds, yeah? Can't put it down. But they are. They're very addictive. And it was analyzing why are, why are games so addictive? Why do, why do kids and grown-ups, quite frankly, get so addicted to games? And they found a link between video games and laziness. And it's very interesting. This is a factual scientific study. This isn't just my opinion. Uh, but they're studying this. And the, what they found is that psychologically we all have this desire to accomplish something, to be productive, Inherently, and the problem with the danger in video games is the video games give you this placebo that you've accomplished something. Suddenly, you feel like you've done all these great things in this virtual world, and so now you're satisfied. I'm done. Look at all that work I did. I conquered a land, I built a fort, I destroyed my enemies, I took on the pigs, you know, or whatever it was. You did all these amazing things in this virtual reality that really counts for nothing. And now you're content. You've satisfied that desire to go and conquer. You've satisfied that God-given desire to accomplish something of worth. Because that's where we really get our, our, uh, our self-esteem, our worth. It comes from doing something worthy. It comes from being, having, that worth comes from, uh, from being a, a little child all the way to a grown-up, from being given a task and being proud of what we've accomplished. That's a good thing. That's a God-given thing. And we're all meant to have that. And we see before the fall, before the curse, God built that into us to have that desire to go and conquer, to go and build, to accomplish things, to be productive. We weren't meant to just lay in a hammock under a palm tree forever. That wasn't paired. I'm sorry. Burst the bubble. But no, it doesn't there a truly deep, satisfying, fulfilling sense when you do accomplish something, when you go out and you get something done? That's God-given. That's built in. And so the danger of, those, of these other things is that it, it's, it sort of taps into that desire and it gives you this, this uh, false sense of accomplishment and then it creates this laziness. There's an interesting article. I'll have to find it for you. You can look it up. But it's interesting how even secular scientists and psychologists in studying human nature and psychology, they've, 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 they've figured this out. They've, they've understood this part of what God designed in us. That we, we are inherently not, we don't want to be lazy. We want to accomplish something. We want to get things done. And that's God-given. 
And when God said, go and take dominion, he built in us the inherent desire to go and do that very thing, to be a, go and be a good steward of this planet, to build and create and to do what he intended for us to do. So then reading on in verse 16, it says, Then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So pretty straightforward warning there. One thing to note was Eve here when God gave this command. Initially, no, she was not. More on that later. But then God said to Adam, or then God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And so out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. Now from this passage, I think we can deduce that even though it seems to be a relatively short story, Adam was probably in the garden for quite some time before he made that bad decision. Can you imagine how long it took to name all the animals? How long would that take? You know how many animal, different animal species there are? Uh, man, what a, what a monumental task. We've given this one little snippet in one verse, but just think about that one process alone that God gave to Adam in taking dominion and in being a steward. Um, that's a pretty monumental task. And so whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Shocker. No way. So why did God do this? Okay, obviously, we can look at this, and reading on the surface, people who would mock would say, see, look at this silly God. He's trying to find this helper for the man, and so he's looking through all the animals, and then finally comes to the conclusion, oh, I guess there isn't one for you. I guess I'll have to start over and make something. No, obviously not. What is God doing here? Why would, why would God have Adam go through all of this motion after bringing up the obvious fact that he needed a companion? I believe, it, I believe clearly that, or strongly that, that, that God was showing something to Adam. God was illustrating something to Adam. He was making a point. First of all, that he was a very unique and special creation. There is a very distinct difference between Adam and the rest of creation, the rest of the animal kingdom. He wasn't like the rest, and God had a special purpose for him. And I think he was making that very clear and giving this account to us. Secondarily, also, I think he was helping Adam understand his own need, helping him realize and see, and seeing all creation and seeing how every animal did have a pair and had a mate and had a companion, and how this was part of God's whole design, it really shined a spotlight on what was missing in Adam's life. It made it clear Adam had a need, and Adam needed to see that. And God was showing him that by illustrating it through having him go through this process of naming all creation. He was preparing him to be ready for his helpmeet, his helper, his companion that he would make, and understanding how special she was. That in all creation, how unique the creation of this woman would be and how unique he is. It was a very important thing that Adam needed to understand and that we need to learn from by reading this account. And so we're given the account, what did God do then? So then, after making this point, it says in verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. You know, what's interesting is some scholars actually speculate that that this, actually when it says sleep here, it's, it's many, and like many cases in scripture, there's places where it talks about people going to sleep, and what does it mean? That they died. And some speculate that he actually died and God raised him back up. Now, I don't know if that's far-fetched or not. I'm not necessarily saying that's true. It's just an interesting thought that it would have that kind of parallel to the second Adam who died and rose again to bring about his church, his bride. And so an interesting correlation there. Is that the case here? Not so sure. It's pretty speculative when it comes to the language, but that's an interesting thought. But also notice that the bride that Adam had was paid for by a wound in his side. 
we know the second Adam had a similar price to pay, didn't he? And even in this, I think it was a prophetic foretelling of what Jesus Christ would do for us. Uh, the sacrifice that he would make for his bride, us, the church. Picking up in verse 23, and the man said, Now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So he recognized, he got it, he got the message, and seeing all these animals, seeing all creation paraded before him, and there goes the hippo, and there goes the pterodactyl, and there goes the skunk, and he goes, man, none of these are going to work, obviously. He finally sees the woman, the perfectly designed helper and companion for him, he goes, yeah, finally, something that's, that's the same, that's, 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 that's just like me, something that's compatible, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she should be called, whoa, man. I mean, woman. <laughs> because she was taken out of man. For this reason, one, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here we see what? The institution of marriage. This is the first marriage. This is how we know God himself designed marriage. It wasn't that came about after cultural evolution over time that it was just sort of necessary to provide structure in society or to acquire land or to form, uh, to form um, uh, collaborations with other nations, form treaties. Marriage was not the result of those processes. Marriage was the result of uh, the creative genius of our God. That's what marriage was the result of. It was re the result of an incredibly intelligent designer and he designed marriage as the basic fundamental building block for all society. And not only that, as we come to learn, as we read through the rest of Scripture, marriage had a very specific purpose in this plan of redemption. We're seeing the stage set here. What is marriage supposed to represent? Christ and his church. And we're told in the New Testament that we have a very high responsibility in our marriages to represent that well. That is one of the reasons that a marriage isn't just about us. It's about the whole plan of redemption. And as a church, as his bride, we have a responsibility to represent that. Jesus himself teaches from this passage to teach on marriage. Matthew 19, Mark 10, Jesus talks about marriage and instructs the Pharisees from these very verses. So let's look at some of the principles that we find here in this chapter. I just want to kind of recap on what we can learn about marriage just from this chapter in Genesis. First of all, we see that the man was created first. This illustrates the principle of headship and order. God intended for man to be the head of the family unit and the head of the marriage. And we see this clearly spelled out in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 2, Ephesians 5, 2 Peter. I'll talk about how that order is meant to work. And they refer to, many of these refer to creation as their justification for God's design in marriage. So we see here, the man was made first, the helper was brought to him. And so illustrating that he is the head of that relationship, and she is the companion and the complement and the support to that. It's the order of it. Make the distinction, though. It is not to illustrate which one's more valuable than the other, which one's more important than the other. There is an equal plane here as far as value. To say that the man is the head of the wife is not to say she is lesser. It's to say she has a different role. We understand that. This isn't about equality. We're not going to get into that whole debate. We're not going to, you know, this is, this is nothing to do with value, obviously. And Jesus illustrates it very clearly if we read his teachings and what he said. He didn't value man any more than a woman. But there's an order. And there's a specific purpose in it. Is Christ head of the church or are we equal partners with Christ? Christ is head of the church. What is marriage supposed to represent? Christ and his church. There's a reason for this design. Can you see that? And so this isn't about equality or about value. God is proving a point here, and this is part of his design, his amazing design. So we see the order in, in the roles, the various roles, based on the order of creation, and we see that confirmed throughout Scripture. Also, we see that very thing illustrated in the fact that God commanded Adam the, to not eat of the tree. And we're not told anywhere else that God commanded Eve directly. And so it's implied that Adam was given the responsibility to be the spiritual leader of his home. He was given the responsibility to lead his wife in the obedience of God. To, to, to pass on the commands he had been given to that point. 
and to, to be the spiritual leader, to step up in that responsibility. It was not good that man was alone. I know there's plenty of jokes to be made about that, so I'm not even going to go there. But understand that the woman was created to be man's helper, man's companion. That is the design. It wasn't because of a lack in creation. In other words, God didn't, like we just talked about, God didn't finish his creation process and go, huh, forgot to create a helper for Adam. How did that happen? He's all by himself, and he's obviously going to see all the rest of creation has, has a companion. Um, I guess we should do something about that. No, it wasn't a design flaw. It wasn't, it wasn't that Adam was originally intended to be on his own and fine with that. No. Not just as much as the woman was created for the man, the woman was created to be a helper. The man was created to need a helper. The man was created intentionally with that need, with that incompleteness. And in that union, there's a beautiful picture painted of God's plan of redemption, of his, of his Godhead, his relationship with the Trinity. It's a beautiful picture, but it was created with that intentionally. We're also told here in verse 24 that for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We've heard the term leave and cleave, right? Cleave to his wife. So we're told that marriage is a unique union, and it's meant to take precedence over every other relationship in society. And it's comparing it to the father and mother, which would be the closest relationship you have as a person until marriage. When you're married, it's saying that is the preeminent relationship in your life. Just like those vows you say, uh, forsaking all others, right? How those vows go? That has its roots in these verses. Forsaking all others for the sake of that person that is your spouse. The marriage relationship is considered incredibly holy and important and is to be preeminent over every other relationship you have on earth. It is the most important relationship. And the way you live your life, the way you live in your marriage, that should be obvious. If it is, and if it's not, you're going to see the fruit of that, aren't you? You're going to see the fruit of a marriage that isn't given priority. And it's stinky fruit. But I can tell you, I can promise you, based on God's design, if you follow his design, if you give your marriage the importance that it's meant to have, if your wife, if your husband truly knows that they're the most important person in your life because practically you prove it to them, do you think you're going to have problems with your love for one another and your commitment to one another? No, you're not. If you follow this design, and, and I would say to you that if your spouse doesn't think they're that important in your life, it's your fault. Own up to it. Show them they're the most important thing in your life. And I know for myself, I had to learn that lesson. In my effort to provide for my family and to do what I thought I was supposed to do as a husband, being so busy with so many, many myriad of things, getting lost in the weeds of that, I had to learn that lesson the hard way. It became painfully obvious that it wasn't obvious to my wife that she was the most important thing to me. And I had to change some things up, and that hurt. And I realized the mistake I was making. I'm glad that God taught me that lesson. And I'm glad I learned it. And I'm still learning. I'm not saying I got it down. Don't, don't quote me on that. But I'm saying that I, at least I'm recognizing it and learning it. And I've seen the fruit of it. And I, that I can promise you. There's great fruit when you do that. But it, it takes intentional action, doesn't it? You can't just say those words. Of course, you're the most important person to me. And then your actions don't back it up. That means nothing. Matter of fact, it does the exact opposite. But if you back it up and how you live, if you follow this command that a man shall leave his father and mother, and Jesus repeated these very words, be joined to his wife and the two become one. And what God has joined together, as Jesus said, let no man separate. If you follow that model, you will have a heavenly marriage. You'll have a blessed marriage. We see also here that God did not bring multiple wives to Adam, did he? He brought one. So we see the marriage is meant to be one man, one woman. We also see that he brought him a woman, not another man. It's heterosexual. It's, it's, it's a man and a woman. It's opposite sex coming together. It's, that's what a marriage is by definition, by God's definition. We're not making this up. We're not just religious bigots. The Bible actually teaches this stuff. Okay, there is a clear definition for it. And it isn't hating anyone to tell them the truth. It's actually quite the opposite. You know, if I care about my children, I'm not going to let them play dodgeball on the freeway. As much as they may think it's a good idea, I'm not going to let them you know, play tag on the edge of the Grand Canyon. 
okay? Because I know they'll probably die. And if I care about them, I'm going to be the killjoy. I'm going to be the bummer stick in the mud to go and put an end to the game and pull them away from danger. And that should be our heart when we share the truth of God's message, God's word. That should be the heart behind that message when we stand for the truth and we say, no, actually, gay marriage is not of the Lord. No, it's not blessed. No, it's not okay with God. God clearly defines marriage. And if you want marriage that's like heaven on earth, you've got to do it by his model. And it is spelled out. But if you do that with a heart of love, there can be fruit to that. But understand, it's still, you're going to be accused to be, you're going to call all kinds of names for standing on the truth. But it's the very opposite of what, what the secular world would label it. It's not hate, it's love. To tell, have the courage to tell someone the truth, knowing it's going to cause you pain and ridicule and oppression and opposition. It could cause you to get your business shut down, as it has for many around this country. To have that kind of courage, that's true love right there. And that's the kind of truth we're supposed to stand on. So we see clearly what the model of marriage is to look like. We also see it's permanent. Referring back over to Matthew 19, as I mentioned, I'll read that for you, starting in verse 3. It says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Any reason at all. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, For this reason man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That sounds familiar. Jesus quotes this passage verbatim. And then he goes on to add to that and says, They are no longer two, but they're one flesh, and therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. Clearly it's intended to be permanent. And it's, uh, it's a decision of massive magnitude. I think one of the problems we have in society today, we think we can agree that marriage is something entered into a little too lightly. As even in the church, too lightly. If we realize that we're truly committing, for better or for worse, to spend our life with this person, even if they become crippled or sick or debilitated or change their personality at some point, this is a covenant before God. This isn't something you change your mind on. If people really grasp the gravity of that decision, I don't think they would enter into it so lightly. And once entered into it, I don't think they would leave it so lightly. But I've never known a divorce situation that was a peaceful one. I've never witnessed one that wasn't absolutely devastating to both people involved because it's meant to be permanent. It's meant to be permanent. So it is the last resort. It's always God's desire that there be restoration. Now, I don't want to heap judgment. I don't want this to be this, some, big, some big condemnation thing. Obviously, there's grace. And Jesus goes on to talk about that grace. That, you know, we're, we're in a fallen world. We make mistakes. We fall. We, we make bad decisions. And God can redeem all things. God can heal all things. So if you are, have been through a divorce, you know someone that has, it's not over, okay? I want to give you hope and encouragement. God still loves you. God still can do amazing things in your life, and God can still bless you with an incredible marriage that honors him. So understand, if you've been through that, God is, specializes in redeeming things. He specializes in making good out of tragedy and out of what the enemy meant for evil. And finishing up in Genesis, verse 25. And it says, The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So this first marriage is completed. It's illustrated here. And he gives us this last final detail, saying they, they were naked. They were unclothed. Why does it even tell us that? Well, in the next chapter, we're going to find out a bit. Why, aren't we? Because what happens when they fall? What happens when suddenly sin is brought into the picture? They realize shame. They realize what sin does. And this is one of the things that is affected. But I think this also, this illustrates several things. First of all, the fact that they were, un, they were naked and unashamed. First of all, obviously, it does mention that they were pure and that there was no, there was no, sin was not present yet. And there was no issue with lust or with jealousy or with, uh, or with covetousness or any of the other things that we wrestle with today. But also it illustrates not only the purity of their state, and, but it also illustrates the perfection of all creation. 
I don't know about you, but modesty aside, in wintertime, it'd be pretty tough to walk around naked here. And so this tells you a little bit about not just the state of affairs of their purity before God and their relationship with God and how God made them uh, spiritually and mentally, but also just, again, reiterating what the climate was like, how perfect creation was, that they're completely comfortable, that nothing was needed, nothing, nothing additional was needed to enjoy all of God's creation and to live in perfect harmony in it. It illustrates that fact as well. What kind of world God created that was that perfect? He didn't need a jacket. He didn't need shoes. Uh, he didn't need any of that stuff. Pretty awesome. So the stage is set. We, the, the stage is set for the initiation of this whole incredible saga of redemption, of, of salvation, of how God is going to bring about a meaningful, personal, chosen relationship with his creation. One where we're going to enjoy it for all eternity, and we're going to see how what he gave in the, in the Garden of Eden was a glimpse of what ultimately we'll get after we voluntarily choose him and get to spend eternity with him. That, that we Really, Garden of Eden was just a taste of that, how eternity is going to reflect all that the Garden of Eden w was supposed to be and could have been. Um, it's interesting, and we're going to talk about it more next week, how there's some correlation between Revelation and Genesis. When we see how the earth started out, and then ultimately we come full circle to where we end up after final judgment, and we get to enter into eternity, into God's rest, into, into no more pain, no more crying, no more tears, the perfect existence, and we're locked in. No more bad decisions. No more eating the wrong tree, from the wrong tree. And we get to have that security for all eternity. So the stage is set. Next week we're going to dive into how this all begins. Starts out with some pretty serious drama, doesn't it? And there's something to be learned from all of it. But in all of it, it gives us hope. It helps us know that an incredible designer, a masterful designer who loves us intimately, wants us to know him personally. And he chose us. And he put this plan together because he wanted us to have a true, meaningful relationship with him. And it's beyond our comprehension. It's, it's amazing. It's incredible. And if creation itself is such an incredible design, how much more where the bulk of Scripture is dedicated to this plan of redemption, how much more so is that plan? And learning about it, seeing how it unfolds, it's going to be good stuff. So with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. For your love for us, thank you that you know us. Thank you, thank you for the things you created purely for the sake of us enjoying them. And thank you for the things that you created that illustrate a bigger plan and purpose. All of these things in some miraculous way point to you and point to your plan and purpose. None of it was just for the sake of it. None of it was by accident. Everything had a specific purpose according to your design. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see you working in and around our lives even now. Lord, you haven't stopped working. So help us to know uh, what you're doing to follow you, to interact with you, to walk with you on a daily basis. And So Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us to walk in it. I pray your blessing on each person as they go out from here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.